I'm Ben Coley. I've been a presenter at BFBS The Forces Station for the past two and a half years. My second overseas posting was to the Falkland Islands, but I'll be dead honest, before I went, I hardly knew anything about the military conflict that happened there 40 years ago. In this series, I want to learn even more by hearing from those who were there. We got off the shelf an existing contingency plan, in this case going to Norway and NATO, stretched it and looked at it to see where it fitted. On the way down, we did all sorts of training, we did drills, we did lots of damage control and fire exercises. Going on board the QE2 was a pretty extraordinary event. They'd done a very fast conversion and it was pretty bizarre. We had a two-man bunk, ensuite toilet, top of the world restaurant, that's what it's called, the top of the world, menu cards. And I remember up on the bridge wing that evening, seeing Sheffield in the distant horizon smoking and leaning, but she was still afloat. Early on, you know, we were referring to the Argentinians as Argentinians, and then later on, they sort of depersonalise it, and they're just called the enemy. Join me on a journey from invasion to liberation. This is Falklands 82, stories from the South Atlantic. Malvinas Operation Theatre Command, Communique Number 1. The commander of the Malvinas Operation Theatre, performing his duties as ordered by the Argentine government, materializes here after the historic continuity of Argentine sovereignty over the Islas Malvinas. The Falkland Islands have been invaded by Argentina and British military commanders are scrambling to put together a task force to travel down to the South Atlantic and take them back. The House meets this Saturday to respond to a situation of great gravity. We are here because for the first time for many years, British sovereign territory has been invaded by a foreign power. After several days of rising tension in our relations with Argentina, the Falkland Islands are 8,000 miles away from the UK. Before my time there, I didn't have a clue where they were. By all accounts, the soldiers, sailors and airmen of 1982 were also in need of a geography lesson. I must admit I'd never heard of them. Like most people, if somebody had asked me, I probably thought they were off the coast of Scotland. Suddenly it was a U-turn and we're heading south to some place called Falkland Islands, which we all thought was in the Outer Hebrides. <laughs> I became aware that there was something going in in the Falklands, albeit that I didn't really know where the Falklands was. So I thought, I don't have very far to go. And then 8,000 miles later, there I was, you know, in a landscape that really did look like Scotland. And also, even more embarrassing, when they said South Georgia as well, I thought that was on the coast of America. And I thought, yeah. what are they doing attacking USA and Scotland? Now, there's a thought. Nowadays, British troops travel to the Falklands by plane. It's an infamous 18-hour flight on an A330 Voyager, departing from RAF Bryce Norton with a refuelling stop halfway at Cape Verde. I remember it being a flight full of backache, binging the Queen's Gambit and getting next to no sleep. I might be feeling sorry for myself, but for the task force, the journey was going to be weeks, not hours, and a much more daunting prospect. I'm Ivor Helberg. I was the commanding officer of the Commando Logistics Regiment, Royal Marines. I think it was 
probably the most extraordinary challenge imaginable because you you were looking on the map and think shit it's it's 8000 miles away we're just loading everything as it became available as the ships became available we didn't know really what the outshot would be was it going to be an opposed amphibious landing possibly if the argentinians didn't back off initially we thought they can't be serious they're going to back off surely but they didn't he was you know, Galtieri got more and more entrenched. There was no way he was going to move. Three Paris' Brian Faulkner helped to source the ships Britain required. He'd been part of a mission to requisition SS Cambra, an ocean cruise liner from the Mediterranean. It was a case of off with the passengers and on with the troops back to Britain. And then it was his turn to head for the Atlantic. We sailed out at night from Southampton. We manned the decks to wave cheerio to everybody. Some of our wives had come down from Tidworth because that's where we were stationed at that time. And they started playing military music to encourage us. And then chocks away, away went the, the rope to tie the, the anchors in the ship against a key and we slowly pulled away. And all the wives were there waving. I asked Kath, my wife, not to go down there because it had been about a week to 10 days that I'd already gone and I'd rather it stay that way. So she understood and she didn't come down with the rest of the wives club. And as we were sailing out of Southampton, everybody along the coast knew what the ship was doing and who was on it. And they'd all stopped turned their cars towards the sea and all turned their lights on, flick, 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 and give us an send-off with all their headlights. That was quite a moving moment. Like the surface fleet, the submarine service was scrambled from all corners. Rear Admiral Roger Lane Knott was commander of HMS Splendid. It was a long way and they wanted us there as quickly as possible. So we went to maximum revolutions in the full power state and I was going at 800 feet most of the time, absolutely flat out. Coming to periscope depth once a day for a fix, check the trim, get all the communications in, and away you go. So what were the components of the task force? In total, 127 ships set sail. Some were Royal Navy warships, and as we've heard, some were cruise liners. They carried a reinforced three-commando brigade with 2nd and 3rd Battalions, the Parachute Regiment, attached, along with other units, including a reinforced troop from the Blues and Royals. So what was the plan? Well, it turns out there wasn't one. My name is Julian Thompson. In 1982, I commanded the 3rd Commando Brigade, Royal Marines, as a brigadier, and we carried out the initial landings and fought most of the land battles. The MOD had done a study before where they concluded that retaking the Falkland Islands would be impossible. So if you dream that something is impossible, you don't waste time writing a plan to work it. How are you going to do it? And then suddenly the box marked impossible was opened and we were handed the task. What we actually did was we got off the shelf an existing contingency plan, in this case going to Norway in NATO, and then stretched it and looked at it to see where, where it fitted how many ships did you need, etc., etc. Now, the problem arose because we needed many more ships than were required for a NATO task, because my brigade had grown, because I had three para added to it, 
I had some anti-aircraft uh, guys added to it. So it was growing from 3,000 men to about 5,500. And we had problems persuading the naval headquarters northward that that's why we needed so many. So we didn't need it when we went to Norway. He said, no, we didn't take 10,000 tons of ammunition with us when we went to Norway and things like that. Things were moving fast. So fast, in fact, that those on board the ships were still not convinced they were going into battle. John Reed and Andrew Kenyon were radio operators on board HMS Arrow. Me personally, anyone I spoke to, pretty much thought that once Argentina realised there was a task force heading that way, that they made a big mistake and they would pack up and go home and we wouldn't even have to arrive there. I thought there was absolutely no chance of going to war when the Argies realised what was going to happen. You know, we would all sail north, but uh, yeah. as you well know, that didn't happen. After the speedy departure of the task force, it was a case of hurry up and wait. It took several weeks for the ships to get down to the South Atlantic. So what was the best use of time on that long journey down? The answer is training, training and more training. As Brian Faulkner from Three Para recalls, he was a little out of his depth delivering some of it. The most embarrassing point that I had at the time is I was designated to brief the battalion in companies on an airborne operation with helicopters. Now, I'd never done that before. All I'd ever done was flying them. The gentlemen travelling with us, the Royal Marine Commandos, it was a forte of theirs, heli assaults going ashore. I was completely lost. So I was in the main theatre giving the lecture on the helicopter assault I'm glad there was no Royal Marines in there. It was just for the parachute regiment. And I really had to put something together pretty good, so I simply went down to a cabin somewhere and watched a film about Vietnam and helicopter uh, insurgents there and just had to make it all up from there on. And everybody thought, that's fine, that's what we're going to do, not knowing that we're not going to use any helicopters when we land. Other aspects of training had to be improvised too and add to that the inconvenience of having to do it all on board a ship. Going on board the QE2 was a pretty extraordinary event. They'd done a very fast conversion and covered up swimming pools with potential helicopter landing pads, etc. It was pretty bizarre because it's a fairly over-the-top ship, as you can imagine, but it had about twice as many people, or maybe three times as many people, as it was designed to carry normally. So you ended up having lectures on stairwells in the middle of which a small Gurkha would come through blindfolded, practicing getting off the ship in case of an attack. On the way down, we did all sorts of training. We did drills, we did damage control and fire exercises and you know casualty things and so forth. Anything we did to prepare. We were very busy. We, we were on the North Sea Ferry, the Norland. Lots of training going on, every aspect of an infantryman's life. Lots of running about, you know, fitness training in the in the circumstances we've got. So running up and down stairs and around car decks and, and stuff like that. And then, you know, signals training, weapon training. And our time was, was taken up, you know, fully so we didn't get bored. Go on board the Canberra, it sounded like um, sort of somebody hammering the whole ship, the whole ship was shaking with these chaps running around, trunk, 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 uh, keeping fit and, you know, carrying their arms and stuff, firing at targets uh, in the sea, um, 
it was quite exciting to see the whole build-up and the morale going with it, with their confidence coming up. We did quite a lot of weapon training, firing at rubbish bags off the back of the ship, which are quite hard to hit when it's choppy. We did hand-to-hand combat training, and we did some Spanish lessons. The only thing I remember from my Spanish lessons is Manos Arriba, which is hands up. So the training was different, but what was it that kept up morale and allowed the troops to blow off some steam? Commander of 4-2 Commando, Nick Vaux, says it was vital to keep boredom at bay. There was many, many hours that needed to be filled constructively because the last thing we wanted with over a thousand highly trained, extremely fit young marines and paras that they should, you know, out of boredom, start falling out with each other. In fact, despite many stories to the contrary, the whole way down in the Canberra, there was only friendship and cooperation, and we all did our training together and so on. But one of the activities Nick recalls actually encouraged rivalry between Her Majesty's Specialist Infantry Forces. We had quite a comprehensive athletics competition, which was not necessarily between Royal Marines and Paris, but it ended up being that way because it was company groups. And eventually at the end, by a whisker, 4-2 Commando won, and pictures were taken. And my eldest daughter sent me a letter later saying, I think I saw a picture of you with two bottles of champagne and I wondered what on earth you were doing. Nuclear submarine commander Roger Lane Knott remembers some dark humour being employed by the younger crew members of HMS Splendid. It was interesting, their attitude. The younger members of the ship's company were all for this. And, you know, they were painting Don't Cry For Me Argentina on the periscope, on the the torpedoes. But the senior rates were slightly more sceptical about it. You know, as you get closer to pension, you hope you're going to last all right. But I have to say they were amazing. The fleet carrying the troops included requisitioned civilian vessels, including some of Britain's finest cruise liners. This meant that the lengthy journey was one of luxury for Welsh guardsman Nick Wilkinson, who was on board the QE2. It still had all its restaurants and fine dining and posh cabins. We had a two-man bunk, ensuite toilet and... Top of the world restaurant, that's what it's called, the top of the world. Menu cards telling you what you're going to eat. It wasn't rations, it was proper food that they'd stowed on the QE2. So, uh, yeah, it was it was a dream. When you think about the paras and the marines and what they went down on. And we were like, living the dream. But Neil's taste of the high life was coming to an end, as things were about to get real. On the 2nd of May 1982, the General Belgrano, an Argentine light navy cruiser, was torpedoed by the Royal Navy submarine HMS Conqueror. The ship sank with the loss of 323 sailors, the largest death toll in a single day during the conflict. The attack was seen as controversial, as the Belgrano was outside a total exclusion zone surrounding the Falkland Islands, which had been declared by Britain. But Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher defended her decision. That ship was a danger to our boys. That's why that ship was sunk. I know it was right to sink her, and I would do the same again. 
Brian Faulkner from 3rd Battalion, the Parachute Regiment, recalls the moment he heard the news. Well, the whole ship was having their evening meal, 6.30, 7 o'clock. And over the tannoy, the main tannoy, gentlemen, I'd like to inform everybody, or words to this effect, that the Argentinian cruiser, the Belgrano, has been sunk by one of our submarines. Oh, cheering, shouting, everything was happening. And then within minutes, all the guys suddenly realised what had happened. This is it. It's a real war. And they started to think of those poor sailors on board the ship. We are not that bad soldiers where we, we wish them all to drown or die. It hit them that this was it. Then we found out how many men had gone down on the Belgrano. And it, it struck a chord into everybody. We've got to prepare for this. Argentina retaliated swiftly. HMS Sheffield, a Type 42 destroyer, was attacked and hit. The ship caught fire, which spread out of control. When there was no longer any hope of saving the ship, the ship's company abandoned ship. That was Ministry of Defence spokesman Ian MacDonald speaking at a press conference. HMS Sheffield was struck by an Exocet missile which hit the control room. Petty officer Chris Howe was on board HMS Coventry at the time. I remember the day that Sheffield was sunk, actually, on the 4th of May. And I do remember being up on the bridge. We couldn't believe it at first that Sheffield had been hit by the Exocet. I remember we were airborne in red under air attack and we were all looking for the Aton Dard missile system and electronic warfare is something that would pick that up. We we were looking for that and firing our chaff delta for distraction ourselves in Glasgow and Sheffield and we were talking on the radios and then we realised that Sheffield had been hit and I remember up on the bridge wing that evening seeing Sheffield in the distant horizon smoking and uh, leaning, but she was still afloat. And then, of course, abandoned ship order was given. Of course, we had no idea about who they'd lost or how many casualties at that stage. And the days to come would tell us that. And we were looking through the casualty list to see if we knew anybody. Andrew Kenyon was a teenage sailor on board HMS Arrow. As word of the attack reached them, the crew sprang into action. As soon as she was hit, we were one of the nearest ships to her and the skipper made the obvious decision to go to her aid. So we, we sailed up alongside her, at which point I think I was just told to don on a foul weather jacket and strap a radio to me back and go out onto the upper deck. And that's the first time I've been outside the ship, if you like, onto the outside because of the job that I did since getting into the total exclusion zone. So. There I was, and the downside to that was, as a 19-year-old radio operator, who normally is inside a tin box downstairs, if you like, I could see the whole horror of what was happening on Sheffield in front of my eyes. And that's something that will live with me till the day I die. To me, it was like 9-11 for people that watched 9-11 unfold. That's as near as I can, I can put it. It was just horrible seeing one of our newer, big ships, bigger than ours, taken out, on fire, smoke puddling out, lads running around in, in their anti-flash gear, 
we started pumping water on and helping with the firefighting. Over 200 literally jumped from their ship onto ours. That's how close we were. With the swell of the sea at times we were touching, but others were just a few feet apart. Many of the 268 on board were rescued, but 20 died and more were injured. Senior nursing officer Nikki Pugh was still on the voyage south on the hospital ship Uganda when news of the first casualties came through. Uh, I think it was a question of proceed south at all speed. The whole nature of evacuation of casualties in a war zone has to be a speedy and efficient process and um, that was our objective now to reach the site to help the combat troops as, as speedily as we could. Hopes of towing HMS Sheffield all the way to South Georgia were eventually dashed. In high seas, water flooded through the hole in her starboard side before it could be shored up. On the 10th of May, she sank. Ascension Island pretty much marks the halfway point between Britain and the Falkland Islands in the Atlantic Ocean. It's another British overseas territory south of the equator, which made it the perfect place for the task force to stop and reorganise. As Captain Ian Gardner of 4-5 Commando Royal Marines explains. Ascension was, I wouldn't say it was in a state of chaos, not at all, but there was a lot of activity going on and we were small fry and they were very pleased to get rid of us. We were sent in coaches to a place called English Bay on the other side of the island and that suited us just fine. We could conduct ourselves to our entire satisfaction there. There were tents there, we lived in tents, there was a nice beach nearby. But living and training on a tropical island, getting sunburnt, it was a strange preparation to fighting in what was effectively Ranachmoor and midwinter. But we understood that. But there were plenty of good facilities. There were lots of areas we could train. We could run up the mountains. We could get fit. We built ourselves some live firing ranges. It was a very useful time there, and we got to know each other quite well as, as the two companies. We hadn't seen Yankee Company for months. They'd been in Brunei training in the jungle. Very good training for fighting in the South Atlantic. Yes, training in the jungle is perfect preparation for fighting in the place well known for its lack of trees. Petty Officer Chris Howe remembers there was a lot going on, but managed to find the positives. Ascension was a very busy airhead. I remember seeing lots of comings and goings, big Air Force transport aircraft and tankers coming into the airfield there. So it was a very busy time. Still plenty of time for a spot of fishing though. I remember we had some fishing and I caught a really nice grouper fish, which I sold to my Chinese laundry guy for free laundry for a month. That sounds like a good deal. Aside from the fishing, Lieutenant Colonel Ivor Helberg, who was in charge of logistics, found Ascension to be a vital stopping point. All our kit, it's bespattered all over these ships. We're going to have to do a massive restow. Where are we going to do that? Well, of course, we know it became Ascension Island, which doesn't have a harbour or anything else. It took us ages, 10 days, to restow everything. When we actually packed it, we had to do it in such a way that the last stuff we put on board the ships was going to be the first stuff or supporting the units as they went ashore in their battle formation, wherever it was. So we had to match all that up and find it out of the various ships and put it in their right place and do an absolute check as to where everything was. 
It was also the place where the British military chiefs finally made their plan. We left without a mission, but we thought this is what we're going to have to do. Okay. So what we did is we worked out what we thought we would do. And then when we got to Ascension Islands, they had a, a sort of council of war chaired by uh, John Fieldhouse, who flew down from London especially to do it. Admiral Sir John Fieldhouse was commander of the task force. He turned to Julian Thompson, commander of 3 Commando Brigade, and Michael Clapp, the commander of the amphibious assault group, to work out what to do. We then identified the various problems. He then said to Mike and I, you choose the beaches, you choose where you're going to land, and tell me and I'll approve it or not. So we went away and then we had a very useful officer on board, a called Ewan Southby Taylor, who had commanded the Falklandine detachment some four or five years earlier and had written a book about all the beaches because he was trying to sell it as a pilot. <laughs> and because all the, all the charts didn't take you in close enough to the beaches to work out how, was there a rock in the way or was there a, a sandbar? Some of the charts were signed by a guy called Cook. So, um, you know, they were quite old. And he was absolutely invaluable because he could say, I wouldn't land there because of this, or here's a place you can land. So it meant you cut down the number of options very quickly into what was possible and what wasn't possible. But was he confident the plan would work? I knew Marines and parachute soldiers could do it. I wasn't sure anyone else could because I knew that our guys had been trained on Dartmoor and the Brecon Beacons. And so it would be familiar. And I knew that they do it. I was absolutely confident they'd do it. I knew it would be bloody hard work. But I knew that they would be able to do it. Next time on Falklands 82, stories from the South Atlantic. I was never, frankly, in any doubt that there would be a war. We are going to be the people to fight it, and we are going to win it. I had planned that we'd do a raid on Goose Green. A raid not to take the place, but to duff it up and, and make life difficult for them. He got on the tannoy and he said, we're just about to fire the first missile. It will kill people. The, one of the bombs hit the depth charge and the depth charge exploded and started a fire on board. And that was what caused the main damage. It wasn't until I was on the Uganda that I realised how badly I was burnt. This is an original BFBS podcast produced by me, Ben Coley, with Jess Bracey, Jade Calloway, Ginny Carlin and Tim Humphreys, with interviews from BFBS The Forces Station and our friends at Forces News. Sound design and editing is by Joe Carden and Sean Harper, and our editor is Josella Waldron. <laughs>